Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi there, welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by my Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode is my Wall Street head analyst Rory Caron and Anne-Marie Kingsland from our analyst team. Today, we're talking about Facebook's latest brand crisis, why everyone is so worried about the demise of the Chinese company Evergrande, and all you need to know about Allbirds ahead of its IPO. So guys, a wild story to start today's podcast off with. So I was reading that last week, the multinational tobacco company Philip Morris successfully bought a pharmaceutical company called Vectura. The real kicker in this story is that Vectura is a company that is best known for producing inhalers. Rory, I maybe want to come to you first on this because this is insane. This sounds to me like the plot out of one of those old James Bond movies where like the villain buys this company and it just, it just, it's bit defies belief create a problem solve a problem <laughs> basic <laughs> business isn't it <laughs> it's like the worst razor and blade model i've ever heard of yeah it's like it's like they're really trying to own both ends of this this market <laughs> the, the problem and the solution it's it's insane though like it really it reminded me of that uh that old peter lynch thing of diversification but it, it might not actually be a bad move for for a tobacco company I mean, I don't follow tobacco companies, so I don't know. I don't know what their what their margin profile is like. What's this going to add in incremental revenue? But it sounds messed up. I'll give it that much. <laughs> it's pretty wild. Well, speaking of evil companies or reportedly evil companies, let's talk about Facebook. See what I did there? Oh, yeah. um, so Facebook is back in the news again, and surprise, surprise, it's for all the wrong reasons. So last week, the Wall Street Journal published a series of articles which revealed a startling amount about the way Facebook works behind the scenes. So based on internal reports and documents compiled by Facebook itself. These articles catalogued a wide range of controversial practices related in the company, including, deep breath here, confirmation that the so-called elite users were exempted from platform rules, severe shortcomings in the platform's response to serious issues like human trafficking and terrorism on the site, and perhaps most worryingly, recognition through the company's own research that the harmful effects of platforms like Instagram on its users, particularly teenagers and young girls. Just before we get into the story, Rory, I'm going to come to you first, but I just want to flag to our listeners that some of the content mentioned in this report might be upsetting for some listeners, so discretion is advised. But Rory, I want to come to you. Are there any parts of this report or these reports that were particularly shocking to you? I mean, this is one of the most, I mean, outrageously bad two weeks in terms of PR I think I've ever seen from one business. You know, I mean, like possibly only surpassed by the Cambridge Analytica scandal. That was also yeah, Facebook like, famously. Like take, taking down <laughs> modern democracy is pretty bad. I didn't think it could get worse than that. <laughs> yeah, I think well, like with the Cambridge Analytica thing, that was like kind of one story. You know, this is like loads of stories and they're just dripping out on like basically a daily basis. I ca- like I can't imagine what it's like in their corporate comms office right yeah. now. Um, but like I said, there's so much to talk about. And for those who want to delve into every part of it, I cannot recommend highly enough the podcast that the journal has produced covering each story in depth. I, I put it on my um, my Twitter profile there. It's just fantastic journalism. Yeah, look, loads and loads to get to. Uh, 
I think like a lot of what came out, right, people probably already knew, even if we didn't have any kind of direct proof of it. So you mentioned the cross-checking, basically whitelisting VIP users. Like Facebook has denied this for a long time and said everyone on the platform has to follow the same rules. But of course, there's been loads of examples over the years, but it just clearly wasn't the case. And like, and they always had some excuse as to why certain individuals were getting away with it. But now we know that there was a system in place for a lot of these VIPs. And there was a lot of them, 5.8 million of them. So it seemed like any Facebook employee could just add someone to this list who were not subject to the same rules. And, And Facebook knew about it the whole time. And it... With that story, I mean, what was so shocking was how it just had become so uncontrollable. The company had no idea what to do about it. They were the ones going, what the hell do we do to fix this? It's just out of completely out of our hands. And so this idea that Facebook is like, you know, knows what's going on and has control of everything that's happening on this platform just isn't true. They really were kind of scratching their heads, running around like headless chickens, particularly on some on some issues. And it was a terrible story of Neymar, the footballer, putting new videos of someone on online and it got, it got left up for like 24 hours. And like the Instagram one as well, you know, I think instinctively people kind of knew this was harmful for people's mental health, particularly teenage yeah. girls. But now we know that it was actually being studied by Facebook and they had hard data on exactly how harmful it was. And for years, they kind of brushed this off as, you know, well, social media is complex and, you know, all the all the other platforms have this these problems. But Facebook actually knew that Instagram was particularly bad, even in comparison to other social media platforms. It notes that TikTok, which is also very popular with teenage girls, was very much more focused on kind of being funny. Um, And Snapchat, even though that was kind of very visual, was focused on kind of the face and the use of these silly looking kind of filters on their app. Whereas Instagram was very much focused on lifestyle and body image. And this was the stuff that was causing the majority of the mental health problems that they found in about one third of young teenage girls who use it. And not only does the company do very little about this, they hide the research. They try to prevent other research groups from conducting their own studies. Then, you know, we get into the algorithm issues where documents showed that a change in 2018 that was supposed to make it a better place, supposed to make people kind of happier, actually made them angry. (laughs) Um, and And this, I mean, it does really highlight the complexity of Facebook. And there's kind of this like social engineering element of what a small change can do. But again, when they found out about it, they were like, okay, it's making people angrier, but that might be better for us actually as a business that actually might help us. So when data scientists believed they could make like really positive impacts, they even at one point suggested removing the reshare button, this was not even considered because it was like going to hurt the business. I think, you know, when you talk about shocking, I think the story about human trafficking, which Facebook has known has been happening on the site for years, is probably the most shocking, mostly because time and time again, it seemed like it was being flagged to the the company by their employees, by media organizations. And every time the company made like these tiny little changes, but never really tackled the, pro- the, the problem fully. And it was only in 2019 when they got a call from the BBC, the BBC was doing a, a report into this who, that had found plenty of plenty of examples of women in Kuwait being essentially bought into domestic servitude they contacted Facebook and said, look at all this stuff that's going on. And Facebook went, oh God, that's terrible. And they went in and they kind of, they deleted all the content, but they didn't really make any changes to yeah. the system to try and prevent further content. It was only when the BBC contacted another big tech company, a little company called Apple, and said, do you know there's an app on your store where there's human trafficking happening? And Apple lost it, yeah. like absolutely lost it and contacted Facebook and were like, we are thinking of taking you off the app store. 
It was only then that Facebook were like, okay, we need to solve this problem. So I think, you know, even what emerges from all these stories is this kind of pattern within the business. It's a culture where the company is happy to do things like form working groups. You know, they spend hundreds of millions on things like their oversight board or their integrity team or their civics team. And they collect all this data and they read all the data. But when the groups make suggestions, they basically look at the suggestions and rather than saying, oh, that's a great suggestion, that'll solve our problem. They look at them and go, What's, what can we do that kind of looks like we're tackling the problem while causing the least amount of disturbance yeah, to our Yeah, it seems to me that like up until this point, Facebook kind of t- told the line of, you know, this is kind of like Frankenstein's monster. You know, we, we've pioneered social media. These things happen. We can't foresee them. Now, it, it's quite obvious that not only can they see these things happening, they know they're happening and they're purposefully covering them up. Yeah, and the company would point to the fact that like they are doing all this research and they're looking into all this stuff and they're spending all this money. And yes, they are. They're spending more money than probably anyone else on this stuff, but they should be because they're making more money than anyone else on this stuff. And I think like, you know, these are coming from leaked documents and I don't think anyone would like an unvarnished version of something that they may have said in confidence becoming public because there's always there's always issues with, you know, total accuracy when you don't have the full context. But that argument, I think, kind of falls a bit flat here because Facebook has the full yeah. context, it's, you know, and yet we see time and time again, they're just not acting yeah. on it. And what's worse is the company came out with the response that was, you know, delivered by the ever slobbering Nick Clay, who's <laughs> basically said, this is just another case of the media targeting Facebook and only focusing on the bad. Meanwhile, just this week, the New York Times published an article about a project within Facebook called Project Amplify in which it's going to promote pro-Facebook stories in its own timeline and try to shelter Mark and other executives from any public scrutiny. So there's something deeply hypocritical about that response where they're like, oh, you guys only focus on the bad. And then secretly they're like, we are going to push in front of people how great we are all the time and hide, try to hide bad yeah. stories. Well, let's move on for a moment though. And, and I suppose th- there's all of this, I suppose, wider criticism of, of Facebook, but with our investor hats on, you know, Facebook has probably, as mentioned, had a brand crisis since 2018 and the whole Cambridge Analytica scandal. But since then, the company's market cap has doubled. Is is another case of bad press like this really going to impact Facebook as an investment and as, as you know, impede its growth? I mean, that's, it's, it's, I think like, you know, yeah, we know that Facebook has kind of almost this kind of Teflon element to it where no matter how bad the scandals are, it doesn't seem to impact the business because it's so diverse and it's so, it's so everywhere. You know, it's like, even if someone decides I'm going to go off Facebook, they're probably using WhatsApp. They're probably using Messenger. They're probably using one of the properties, Instagram. But let me, I suppose like this isn't necessarily, I don't know, going to be a major impact by itself. But then you look at the other things that could happen, you know, like this could prompt Apple again to go, hold on a second, you guys said you were fixing stuff and clearly you're not. We know, of course, that Apple changed its iOS this year. That's definitely hurt its ad business. There's a couple of lawsuits coming up about the board of Facebook paying billions of dollars to protect Mark and Sheryl Sandberg. There's a lot of things kind of happening with Facebook right now. There's a lot of good things happening in the business, but there is other elements that could very much hurt this business and you know this definitely isn't good for yeah them, right give it a, i'll give it that i don't know what the long-term impact is going to be but there's a lot of things that this could co- sort of set off one of the in, in a lot of the, the pieces i've read about this i've seen a lot of comparisons with big tobacco and obviously we mentioned philip morris at the start do you think that's fair do you think you know facebook have now ventured into that area where they know they're a net bad for the world but they're they're going to keep going 
yeah, I saw that comparison as well. Like it's that's it's difficult. Like in terms of the fact that the company is causing harm knowingly, right? And try to hide it from the public and from regulators. You know, they've refused to hand this research over. You know, that does sound a lot like what tobacco companies were doing all those years ago. And you know, if we're going to take mental health seriously, which we should, particularly the mental health of children, then there should definitely be a kind of heightened public outcry about mm. this. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. The tobacco comparison might be a bit extreme, but it like there's definitely bad things happening here that the company really needs to address. We'll keep an eye out for Facebook buying an inhaler company. That that might be our signal. <laughs> All right, well, Rory, the final question here, and it's a big one. Um, you know, here at my Wall Street, we consider ourselves ethical investors, and we only choose companies for our shortlist that you know we we believe in or that align with our beliefs. Do you see, foresee a day where we remove Facebook from our shortlist for those reasons? And um, it's a discussion we have yeah. on a regular basis. I'm not gonna lie. Ethics is tough. You know, everyone has to kind of decide themselves, I think, what they're comfortable in investing. Yeah. Uh, I've heard Facebook be call, called a kind of hold the nose type investment. <laughs> it's it's something we talk about. Okay. Okay. Something to keep an eye on anyway. Um, let's move on then to uh, another story that when I saw this pop up in my news feed first, probably on Facebook, by the way, I actually thought that a ship had gotten stuck in the Suez Canal again. But then I realized that we were talking about ever grand, not ever given. Uh, it shows my ignorance on, on global affairs. But in any case, the markets globally have been shook this week over fears that this Chinese company, which is the world's largest property developer, I believe, is on the brink of collapse. I've even seen one commentator call this the Chinese Lehman Brothers moment, which as a millennial stoked some deep rooted fears in me I kind of I nearly got some PTSD over that Anne-Marie I know you've been doing a lot of research on, on this whole Evergrande thing can you catch us up on it what's going on why is it making everyone so nervous yeah so um, basically Evergrande is a property developer they develop everything in China from infrastructure to retail to residential space but they're arguably most known for massive apartment buildings that it builds in ev- basically every city in, in China and they really rode the wave of urbanization that took over in China. And the process of urbanization in China is quite dissimilar to what we would maybe be used to in the United States or anywhere else in the West, where we kind of think of urbanization as being a gradual process that kind of you know kicks off in the 1910s or 20s as more manufacturing jobs are created and people move into cities to make more money. Well, in China, that process really didn't start until the 1980s and early 1990s because the country was focused on developing its agriculture. And during the Cultural Revolution, it actually encouraged youths to leave cities and move elsewhere and, and, and go and work on big communal farms. So essentially, China then had to move all of its workers back into its cities in order to increase its ability to fabricate goods to ship abroad in order to strengthen its economy. So essentially, when they were building these apartments, it was at an incredibly rapid, rapid, rapid pace. Yeah. And Evergrande was really like the leader of this process. And because they were building at such an incredible rate, debt was always a part of the company. Like it was just inevitable. There was no way that they were going to be able to build the number of properties they wanted to build without taking on massive amounts of debt. But it was always okay for the company in the past because they could sell the apartments before like they had ever broken ground on anything. And so it meant they were comfortable taking out billions of dollars because they would say, it's fine because as soon as we release these apartments to the public to be purchased, they'll all be purchased and, and, and we'll make back money to at least pay our interest or even pay down yeah. our debt. So that's kind of always been part of the equation really for them. The issue has kind of kicked off for kind of two reasons. And these are, one is 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 urbanization in China is beginning to slow down. And this is because 
the um, the number of young people in China is lower than it was in the 80s and 90s because of things like the one child policy. And it means that there are just fewer people to move into cities. There are fewer people who are now in a position that they have the money to buy a house. And so it means that the number of apartments being bought, the rate they're being bought is is naturally slowing down. And then on top of this, we're in this period in China where things are kind of being reconsidered. The economics of the country are being reconsidered. And one of the main things that they seem to be reconsidering is the amount of debt that the country is relying upon. China has always used debt in order to continue its high growth rate. It, it's done that for the last two decades. It's it's just kind of a part of Chinese economics. Yeah. And I think the current administration is 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 really considering how how mu- how much they want to be reliant on debt. I think they're a little bit uncomfortable with it, both the debt that their citizens are taking on, but but also the country. And so they began to clamp down on mortgages and they brought in new mortgage restrictions. And that meant that now even fewer people were qualified to buy these apartments. So then the purchase rate just began to slow down. And then that was bad news for Evergrande, number one, because they were so reliant on people pre-purchasing these apartments. But then like number two, Evergrande spent basically the last 10, if not 15 years, buying the most random assortment of companies it could possibly find and pouring tens of billions of dollars. I, I'm just going to stop you there, Anne-Marie, because I, I read you, you wrote a report about this in the My Wall Street app, which you can read now. Um, but I, I, I'm looking forward to this part because I just wanted to list out some of the absolutely insane things this company has bought. Uh, start off with the football team, maybe. Yeah. Okay, so in 2010, they purchased the football team, which sits next to their headquarters, which is Guangzhou FC. So they bought the football team. That was great. But then they were, of course, like, we need to be the best football team. So then they poured millions of dollars in bringing European football players over to play for them. So that was fine. They, They put millions of dollars into that. And they actually did end up winning the European League, I think, in 2015. So that's great. Why, why were, why were um, they in the European League? <laughs> no, sorry, not the European League, the oh, okay. Asian League. Okay. I was like, sorry. I, I'm not great My at bad. geography, but I know I know China's not in Europe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. sorry. Um, so then they, that was great. But then they poured $150 million into making a football school there to train local talent. And it made it the most expensive football school to ever be constructed in the entire world. And then from there, they're like, let's have a music production company. So then they spent millions, if not billions of dollars building this music production company, which then closed down in 2015. So that wasn't great for them. And then in 2014, they're like, let's launch a mineral water company. So they launched this mineral water company. They spent $55 million on the marketing in a single year because obviously they need to hire Jackie Chan to be <laughs> Obviously, obviously. Yeah. So then they have this mineral water company. And then less than a year later, they spend half a billion dollars on a life insurance company because that's, they go, perfect. And then you know what the perfect pair to a life insurance company is? Go on. Theme parks. <laughs> theme parks. Perfect. Is, is there any so industry then, they don't have a finger in? No. And then, so they, we spent $7.3 billion opening the first theme park. That's pretty That expensive. is an expensive theme park. <laughs> but don't worry, they're going to build 15 more. So, you know, it's all, it's all, we're all good. I, I think I'm, I'm then, starting to connect the dots of why this company might be in a bit yeah. of trouble. Yeah. And then, this is the worst part. Then they said, let's get into electric vehicles. <laughs> Wait, yeah. So then they spent tens of billions of dollars acquiring stakes in electric vehicle companies and buying electric vehicle companies from all over the world. And then they launched their own electric vehicle company last year. And and then they were like, we need a new soccer stadium. So then they spent $2 billion building a new soccer stadium for their soccer team. So pr- pretty pretty wide wide array of interests there. I think it's pretty clear why, why, yeah. why this company might be facing a bit of a crunch at the moment. I suppose to get on to, to something more relevant to, to our listeners, why... 
is the you know is is the threat of of Evergrande defaulting? Why is that shaking European and you know US markets so much? I think it kind of had a couple of buzzwords that got people really freaked out. I think obviously homeowners that got people freaked out, and also I think like real estate sales in China, the growth in the real estate market is often. Um, a key indicator for people about just China's like overall economic growth in in general. So I think when people saw this, they they began to panic. Yeah. I think it's it's also the idea that you assume that if a if a major owner of housing is going to go under, they're going to drag massive financial institutions down with them, and then you start thinking about oh my god, all these all these financial institutions are interconnected. People own each other's yeah. debt. Like if if this company defaults, how many defaults are coming down the line for you know hundreds of. And, and so, what, what what's the latest then? Do you do you think this is going to be another the Chinese layman's brothers as as I've seen written? Um, no, I don't think so because the way banking works in China is different. Like, so the vast majority of this debt, I think it's like ninety three percent, ninety four percent, is owned internally in China. So it's local banks, it's local governments. Some of these banks are actually owned by the state, and so the vast majority of this pain is going to impact China Chinese banks themselves, okay. and it could trigger a credit crunch. If if it goes under like without any sort of bailout, it's going to trigger a credit crunch where these banks are not going to have a lending capacity to give to other businesses, um, to give to even individuals. And it means that that's going to slow down growth in other companies and other sectors and other industries. And then on top of that, like I'd say probably the biggest impact is going to be the psychological impact. I think this really reminds people that like China is a risky investment. Yeah. There are like a number of conditions that are dissimilar to the West. And sometimes I feel like as an investor, you're like, I don't know, do I understand it enough? And I think this is a reminder of that. And so I think we could, we are probably going to see foreign investment begin to cycle out of China just as people are a little bit uncomfortable with what this is going to do to the Chinese economy. Yeah, absolutely. And on, on that theme of, I suppose, the risk of investing in, in a country like China, there was recent turbulence in, in the casino industry, particularly companies like Wynn and MGM, who were rocked by proposed changes to licensing laws in Macau, which is which is a region in China, sometimes called, I think, the, the Las Vegas of China or the Las Vegas of the East. Basically, what was happening is that there was these proposed uh, laws being brought in that, you know, would favor Chinese operators in Macau and, you know, it would be harder to get licenses and stuff. What, what's your thought on that? Is this just another example of, I suppose, the risks inherent in investing in the Chinese market? Yeah, I think there's like always been risks in investing in the Chinese market. I think the risk profile is changing, though, right now with I think um, the current administration and President Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping in China is really attempting to consolidate yeah. power. I think for decades now at this point, China has kind of walked the line of of saying that you know, it was a communist country, but a communist country that participated in the free market because they understand that it's that's an important driver of like geopolitical power and influence. And I think now China is in this kind of uncomfortable place where they have this government that likes a lot of control. And it has a lot of companies that are now so big and powerful and wealthy that they don't like that in theory, they can't control these companies because they have so much influence and so much money. And I think even individuals, something that they've been discussing a lot recently in China is um, income inequality. They're really uncomfortable with the number of billionaires that they have. It seems to be something they don't like. And so I think regulating these businesses and these CEOs, really, we see it with Alibaba as well. And we see it with DD, which is their version of Uber. I think it's, it's just a way for the, for the, president and the regime to solidify its power. And so I think it it really raises another kind of risk because you don't know what this regulation is going to look like. You don't know what industries they're going to target. Yeah. And you know this could go on for 
years as they um, kind of continue to shake things up in China. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm off to look up now Evergrande's uh, football team. <laughs> any any famous <laughs> players I know who've gone over there to play. Rory, you're a football fan. Have you ever followed Evergrande? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I know, like, I, I know there's a load of football teams in China that just have like millions of dollars and pay players huge amounts of money, but I never know which ones they are. It's kind of where like the best European players have always gone to kind of retire, make their money towards the end of their career. Um, but yeah, I can't say I can, I can name any players off the top of my there head. There was one particular on player then. who played for uh, Barcelona who I think like retired from European football a bit too early because I saw clips of him playing in the Chinese league and it was just like, it was like one man versus the team. You know, like he just basically <laughs> yeah. was running circles around them. <laughs> <laughs> so let's move on then and talk about some of the things going on in my wash at the moment so we actually added a brand new stock to our short list this week a 170 year old company with one of the most powerful brands in the world Rory I was skeptical when I saw that this was the stock being added at first but it seems to be really a case of amazing turnaround for quite an old world business is that the case? Yeah it's a it's a turnaround play it's, it's well on its way into a turnaround to be fair and it's one of those yeah. companies that's just it's 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 built up a very nice little portfolio of businesses. Um, and I think it could be a, a real kind of nice bedrock stock for people. I don't know. It's, I don't believe it's going to be, you know, a 10 X or anytime soon, but certainly a kind of stock that you can kind of hold in your portfolio and, and kind of watch grow kind of slowly. Might be a nice antidote to Facebook as well. You can, you can have one <laughs> Facebook share if you buy one share this company. <laughs> so in addition to that you can read Anne-Marie's full write-up about the Evergrande crisis and what it means for investors along with two first look reports on companies that we're researching at the moment but haven't made a final decision on yet those two companies are Lightspeed and Toast um, if you missed it you can also catch up on Emmett's Wildcard and World Changers workshop for a limited time only if you get access to this recording just follow the link in the notes for today's show it was a great workshop we had it there on Tuesday night and I'd really recommend catching up with it especially considering Emmett's annoying habit of picking a great wild card stock and telling us and then me never doing anything anything about it until it like doubles in value so um, yeah definitely tune into that one on to the mailbag then so for this week's mailbag Rory we've t- we're taking a request from our listener Franco who has asked our thoughts on Allbirds so Allbirds is a New Zealand American fashion company that filed for IPO a few weeks ago what have you found out about Allbirds? Yeah, Allbirds is a very interesting business. It's um, it's a business that was actually founded in 2014 and began life as a Kickstarter campaign. Yeah. They came out with this, this uh, New Zealand guy who used to play football. He was, I think he was on the national team at one point. Um, he had this idea because I mean, New Zealand, as we know, is well known for having lots of sheep. And he yeah. <laughs> had this idea <laughs> of, uh, what if you made trainers? out of merino wool okay alejandro our former head of products a big fan of merino wool he'll be dying to get investing in this business um but anyway the idea was yeah to make sneakers that were kind of better for the environment so they make their shoes with kind of all natural materials it's very ethically sourced and it's very kind of stripped back so there's not a lot of branding for example but very cleverly you can always tell a pair of allbirds they look very distinctive so even though they haven't got like a big swoosh on them or anything you can kind of tell they're allbirds from a mile away and they claim that the these shoes are produce 30% less carbon than a typical pair of sneakers. Um, so the company had a fantastic Kickstarter. It raised 120000 in just three days. They sold their first pair of shoes in, I think, 2016. Uh, by 2018, they'd hit the million mark. 
Today, wow. they have 27 stores around the world. They sold, so far, they've sold 8 million shoes uh, to over 4 million people, which is, you know, phenomenal for a business that's only been around seven years. In terms of the revenue, like they, they made 128 million in sales in 2018, had a nice big jump in 2019 to 194 million. In 2020, they made 219 million. So growth was only 14% in 2020, but of course, you know, it was a worldwide pandemic. They've seen kind of some nice margin expansion as well, up kind of 51%. A lot of that has to do with their kind of DTC model, like almost 90% of their revenue comes from digital. 53% of their purchases come from repeat buyers. So they've got this kind of very kind of loyal following. There's a lot of word of mouth, so they keep their kind of cost of acquisition quite low. And they're very kind of healthy MPS in the 80s, which is kind of unheard of. Um, I actually bought a pair a couple of years ago, and I have to say they were incredibly comfortable. Not probably as kind of robust as perhaps a pair of kind of leather Nikes. Yeah, like like the first thing that comes to mind is Ireland's a pretty rainy country. And <laughs> yeah. Wearing a pair of wool runners doesn't sound like the best strategy. Yeah, they're definitely going to have some, uh, you know, geographic issues in some places of the world. <laughs> uh, they all... But New Zealand's pretty rainy too, I believe. I haven't been there, but... <laughs> yeah, neither have I. I've been to its hotter cousin. Australia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, like uh, looking at the business, I think it's it's so early in this business's life. Like, you know, it's it's rare to get a company IPO and it's only been kind of seven years old and doesn't have a huge amount of like a huge track record. It's one of those ones where you're like, you know, is this going to be there's so much competition as well, you know, taking on Nike is not an easy task and sometimes companies can do it for a little while. Okay, under yeah. under armor. And then like just kind of sweeps by them again. Um, but then, I mean, there's also the potential this could, you know, they're getting into apparel as well. They released apparel last year and they've kind of done some kind of, you know, partnerships with Adidas and stuff. So, I mean, it, could this be a Lululemon story rather than an Under Armour story? Interesting. I don't know yet. I think, you know, it's an interesting space. I think there's, but there's loads of, not only this can be with like some Nike and Adidas, but there's loads of other companies coming out with, you know, more sustainable shoes my partner wears runners with vegan leather and things like that so it's it's far too early i definitely wouldn't invest just yet it's a company that i would put on a watch list and i think it'll be fun to watch them grow because like i said they're young they're doing something a bit different they're taking on the big guys and it could turn out to be a very good stock we'll have to see what the valuation is as well i think the last the last time i looked it was something like 1.7 billion which isn't an outrageous yeah. multiple, but like I said, the growth isn't quite as robust as you would expect from from a business kind of this stage. Uh, but we'll see what happens post-pandemic, I suppose. Okay, interesting. Thanks for that. Uh, let's move on to the elevator pitch then to finish out today's show. So we're going with a classic elevator pitch this week. I just want you guys to pitch me a company you're researching at the moment in 30 seconds. Anne-Marie, I'll come to you first. What company are you looking at at the moment? I am in the beginning stages of looking at Sovos Brands, which is actually a Colorado-based company, which is nice because so am I. And uh, they acquire basically up-and-coming prepackaged food brands that are very small, kind of known for high quality. And then they basically help them reach the entire United States and expand their shelf space and kind of help them with their marketing and their branding. Um, And they own a yogurt company called Nusa, which this is why I knew who Sovos was. And I remember when Nusa like premiered on the scene, probably when I was in middle school and people lost their minds for this yogurt. They lost their minds. <laughs> I remember like, like what? I remember Lose the woman who was, 
Yeah. I remember the woman who lives across the street from us coming over to our house with a Noosa because you couldn't get it anywhere because it was sold out everywhere. And she came across the street with this yogurt and she was like, have you tried Noosa yet? <laughs> like, it was insane. So I'm having a look at the company because, you know, it's always nice when you've like interacted with a company's products and you know that they're good. So what, what, I need to know what makes this amazing. What is this? What's so good about I, this yogurt? It's just excellent yogurt. Like no, it's I need just more super angry. good. What? Like I don't know. Like they put it in these like weird looking containers. I don't know. I think it's just the whole thing. Like you know when the brand name is all in lowercase letters and you're like that's a cool brand. That Nusa does that, you know? The the threshold for losing your mind these days has really been lowered. <laughs> I assume you can't get them here, can you? No, but my parents are coming over in October, so do you want me to uh, ask them to bring some? Yes, absolutely. Mar- we need okay. to we need to Market try this research. Out. Also, okay. get get us get some Celsius drink as well. Oh yeah, yeah. This energy drink that's taken the world by storm. Okay, deal. <laughs> okay, Rory. What suck are you looking at? Does it make you lose your mind? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's actually the complete opposite. It's one of the most boring businesses I've ever seen in my life. But um, we we like boring businesses here. Boring businesses can can be great. Love the them. company I'm looking for at, at the moment is a company called Core and Main. They're the leading specialized distributor of water, wastewater, storm drainage and fire protection products and related services to municipalities, private water companies and professional contractors. So they sell a wide range of products and services used in kind of maintenance, repair, replacement, construction of water and fire infrastructure. It's a new business in some ways. Uh, It was only founded in 2017, but it was after... Uh, the Waterworks Division of HD Supply was was bought out by private equity. Um, I'm going way over the 30, 30 seconds, I'm like. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah, lots to talk about in a very boring water business. I'm keeping my eye on it. It could be a kind of kind of Home Depot style play. Oh, you you know how to get me, Rory. You know yeah, I love, you Home, love Depot. Home Depot. <laughs> Makes me lose my mind. So that's it for today's show. So remember, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer or elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, make sure to get in touch. You can find us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ. On TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet. Or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and don't forget to leave a review or a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. Thanks for joining us here today and we'll talk to you next week. Happy investing. <laughs>